This afternoon I preach the Word of God as find it confessed, summarized and confessed by the church in the Heidelberg Catechism. The second part of the explanation of what the third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We already saw that, that part of that is not to blaspheme or to abuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, which leads to the next question, which we find in Lord's Day 37, question and answer 101 and 102. And here the church confesses, page 554 in the book of praise, but may we swear an oath by the name of God in a godly manner? Yes, when the government demands it of its subjects or when necessity requires it in order to maintain and promote fidelity and truth to God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is based on God's word and was therefore rightly used by saints in the Old and the New Testament. May we also swear by saints or other creatures? No, a lawful oath is a calling upon God who alone knows the heart to bear witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No creature is worthy of such honor. Beloved Church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you'll notice people swear oaths all the time. And the, the oaths that are being taken, they have many different forms. Some, like the Hippocratic Oath of medical professionals, or the oaths to public office, are formal and serious with Promises that a person will use their position for the good of those they are serving. Witnesses in a court case are often asked to swear an oath that they will just tell the truth. Some people have made an oath to carry out the dying loved one's last wishes. No, stick to that their whole life. Others have made an personal oath to exact revenge for something that was done to them or to someone they know. And sometimes people blaspheme the name of God by using the name of God in a thoughtless oath where they say, I swear to God instead of I'm serious. Others intentionally do not use the name of God in their oaths so that they don't feel any pressure to keep the, the promise that they made. And still others choose, make an oath, but choose not to use the name of God because they don't actually honor God's name as much as they, they might honor someone that they love. And so you sometimes hear of people swearing on the grave of a mother or on the, the soul of my father, that famous part in the Prince's Bride movie where they got to throw the rope over and he had to give some sort of guarantee that he would, he would be trustworthy. And he said, I swear, on the, I swear by the soul of Domingo Montoya. 
And then the man on the bottom said, okay, throw the, throw the rope. He was convinced the man was serious. Those, those are oaths that are being used, but are not using the name of God. And all this misuse of the name of the Lord in these different kinds of oaths has, has caused several groups to claim that we should take Jesus' words in Matthew 5 out of context and then forbid all oaths. This isn't what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism. Although we would agree that very few oaths that people are taking today are necessary or even pleasing to the Lord, we also believe that the Scriptures teach that necessary and lawful oaths have a place in society and in the Christian church. When the Lord revealed His holy name to us, He also made that name available to be called upon as a divine witness and a judge, giving a guarantee of the consequences for a lie, guarantee that no human, dead or alive, could ever bring about. So we see the gospel of the possibility of using the name of God, that God's name may be used to swear a lawful oath. We'll see the biblical context, the necessary conditions, and the eternal consequences. In the Bible, you can read about two kinds of oaths. There are oaths that are used to affirm the truth of a person's testimony, and there are oaths to use to confirm one's commitment to an obligation in the future, kind of like a vow. An example of this second kind of oath, the obligatory oath, concerning promises about a person's future commitment can be found in Genesis 24, when Abraham made his servant swear an oath that he would obey his master's instruction. The oath that the servant gave to Abraham gave Abraham assurance that the servant would complete the task entrusted to him. But many of us have made oaths like this when we, when we took up our, our our profession in healthcare or in law or as a civil servant of, of some kind. These are the kinds of oaths that are similar to the, the vows that we may make in our life. And as Numbers 30, verse 2, the display text that we saw as we were walking in here this afternoon, as it made clear, since we called God as our witness to what we intend to do, we need to do our utmost to keep our oath, or else we will face the punishment that God gives to those who blaspheme until they confess their sins and repent and return to the Lord. This reminds us then that it's good to be very sure of what we're capable of doing before we make an oath that we will do something. Now the second kind of oath that we find in the scriptures, and that we especially focus on this afternoon, is an oath that affirms that we are speaking the truth. God's promise to Abraham that he guaranteed with an oath that he swore by himself, and we'll sing about that oath in hymn 18 after the service, that, that's an example of an affirming oath. God said something, and then he, he confirmed it, he affirmed it with an oath in his own name. Another example of this affirming oath can be found in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. 
2 Corinthians 1 verse 23, he says, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. The the apostle called the Lord God as, as a witness because no one else could see his heart. So he swore an oath in the name of the Lord who was was called to witness to to the truth so that his hearers would be assured that that he was serious. He had their best interests in mind. Paul used that affirming oath to promote peace within the churches. And we can also see this kind of affirming oath and how it serves the bond of fellowship when we look at Exodus chapter 22. It's good to have your Bibles open to Exodus 22, and we're especially focusing on verses 7 and 8 and 10 and 11. Here God is giving instruction concerning missing property when there's no evidence available to implicate the person of the alleged crime. And we have to separate out verse 9 out of the description because that describes the scenario of the owner alleging that he saw the missing property in his neighbor's possession. And then that would require a a judgment from the elders representing God, and then there would be a fine, a double the value of goods in the question for the guilty person. But then verses 7 to 8 describe how God's people should respond if the missing goods could not be found anywhere. The thief could not be found And now the original owner does not know whether the person who is watching his stuff is unable to tell the owner what happened to his things or to his animals, or if he is just unwilling to tell the truth because he himself took it. And so rather than allow suspicions to fester in the community with with the man who lent his stuff, always wondering, well, did the guy take it? Or did, did he actually, did it get stolen out of his out of his hand when when he was watching it. The Lord gave his people some protocols, some procedures to ensure that peace would be restored. And these procedures included giving an oath. Verse 8, you see that pointed to when it says, he shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. And then again, you could see that in verse 11, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see, to show, to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's good. We note that this, the use of the oath is going to, to show exactly what happened. The assumption is the weight of this oath in the name of the Lord God would, would compel a guilty person to confess his sin. This is because a person would have to be unreasonably proud or excessively in love with material possessions if he was willing to spend an eternity in hell as payment for being treated as an innocent person for a few years on this earth. He was putting it all on the line. They knew the oath would bring out the truth. For for, for although lying under oath A person may escape justice on the earth. He will not escape justice forever. And in this way, the oath would bring 
finality to the matter. Exodus 22 verse 11 says that the owner of the missing property shall accept the oath. And the person he was accusing, uh, uh, he was accusing would not have to make restitution. The accuser could go away certain. Could go away certain that if the accuser was lying about the missing property and he did not repent, he would spend eternity under God's wrath for this, for this love of some sort of material possession here on the earth. And if the man watching over his stuff was innocent and was telling the truth that someone else had stolen his property, then he would be set free from the ongoing weight of such an accusation and those suspicions. The word was spoken, sealed with an oath. It was finished. And we see the Bible is clear that the oath is reserved for those cases when the safety of the entire community depended on a personal testimony to something someone would do in the future, Genesis 24, or they were speaking the truth in the present, Exodus 22. And then a judge would ask someone to make an oath in the name of the Lord. And so now we'll take a, a closer look at the necessary conditions of these oaths. And the first thing that's necessary for an oath to be used is that it must be necessary. Not to be done lightly. God's name is not to be something that turns common or used flippantly. And so when we think about when is an oath necessary, we will find out that in most cases an oath is not necessary. God has already commanded that we speak the truth and seek the well-being of our neighbor. We don't need to use oaths to be trustworthy. If you say, I was at work the whole day, or if you say, I swear to God I was at work the whole day, the way of saying it does not change the fact that you were at work the whole day. The only reason you would need to bring in an oath is if you needed to convince someone else of what you did or what you witnessed, and this only for the well-being of your neighbor in order to promote harmony and, and unity. We don't need oaths to convince ourselves of the truth, of the details, of the events we were involved with, but to convince others. And how many times do you need, really need to convince others of something that you've seen or that you've done? And when you do try, you'll find it's very, very interesting is that other people actually rely very little <laughs> on what we say. And the reason for that is because as a society, we have learned that every person has very limited observational skills. We're all hindered by our presuppositions, things that we want to happen. We're all selective in fact gathering and we perceive things in in different ways they have those interesting clips about different eyewitnesses and and how they describe a person and they, there's somebody drawing out uh, a, a person that's being described to them by a witness and how different that person looks for for every person 
How, how can that be? Aren't there objective facts? Well, we know that just somebody's word is not sufficient. In addition to this, many people say things to please others. Many people use words to actually intentionally send a, a false picture of who they are or what they've seen just so that they might be accepted by others. And so we're quite used to people living with the often transparent false perceptions about themselves. And so what's happened is that very rarely do we ever rely on just what someone said. Look at the crime, the criminal cases. It's, it's always relying more on investigations based on objective evidence like fingerprints or DNA or the testimony of two or three witnesses who agree on what they've seen and not just the claims of the accused or the accuser who may have many reasons for not being able to recount the facts. And so we see again how little we depend on the word spoken of others, which makes oaths often very unnecessary. We have such a system of gathering information. However, if a judgment needs to be made because an unresolved matter is destroying peace, whether it's for church discipline reasons or criminal justice reasons, and there is no evidence available except what is known by the accuser and the accused, like we have the example in Exodus 22, then God says you yet have recourse to an oath. The first thing about an oath, it has to be necessary. It's something that is needed, the only thing left for us. The second thing we note is that an oath must be in God's name. Once it's determined that an oath is necessary because outstanding contradictions in truth claims are impeding justice and causing harm to God's people or the community, then judges must ensure that an oath is taken only in the name of the Lord. Deuteronomy 10 verse 20 states clearly that you must swear by the name of the Lord only. Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 2 speaks of swearing as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness so that the name of the Lord might be a blessing to nations and they might give him the glory for the truth. So an oath must be necessary, it must be in the name of the Lord, which means that if a person does not know the Lord or does not fear the Lord or does not revere the Lord and doesn't believe that God knows the truth and sees our hearts and is able to punish us forever, then swearing an oath adds no extra weight to their truth claims. You need to know the Lord to swear by the name of the Lord. Swearing an oath in the name of a false god that others worship, or a saint who is long dead, or the articles of the temple, or even the, the Bible as, as a book that records God's words, or mother's grave, all those things that undermine the very character and the function of the oath as a final word of judgment. 
Because all those kinds of oaths, they're oaths without consequences. Things and people cannot know your heart. Things and people cannot be relied on to punish us if we swear falsely forever. If the only way to prove perjury is with the evidence other than the oath, that oath has a very limited function in the process. So we see an oath needs to be necessary. It needs to be in the name of the Lord, which means the person needs to know the Lord. And in the third place, the oath must also involve people that are capable of certainly knowing the truth or knowing the certain truth. After it has been made clear that the oath in the name of the Lord is the only way out of a dispute when they're over the facts. We still have to say, are the people capable of making an oath in the name of the Lord? Even, even people who, who fear the Lord and, and honor his name may not yet be mentally capable of understanding the value of truth for society because they're the kind of people who only care what they can get out of life for themselves. A very infant mental age, maybe addictions to mind-altering substances or activities, narcissists. As a result, they simply do not feel accountable to anyone. The testimony of an immature or a seared conscience that struggles with seeing or caring about the consequences of their actions on others and does not feel accountable to God for their actions, it's nothing more than, than words. They can help little to resolve a dispute. You might ask them to, to swear an oath, but you're asking someone who's incapable of understanding the value of truth for society. Judges are just encouraging blasphemy to encourage or demand an oath from those who are incapable. And so we see how very few times an oath can be used as the final word. Few times that, that we can call in the name of God. And there are oaths that are, we cannot accept as binding. And there are times when we have to say, there is no way to know the truth in this matter. We, we as humans will, will not know until the day of judgment. And to these situations, the Lord speaks in Romans chapter 12, where he teaches us to, to do whatever we can to live in peace with everyone, including a, a willingness to forgive repentant sinners and yet leaving vengeance to God. See, it's only when the oath-takers believe in the one true God with his power and knowledge of the truth, and when they are called upon to make a solemn oath in the name of the Lord due to the weightiness of the, the consequences and the, and the well-being of the community, that the oath will truly serve its purpose. But when it does... It serves its purpose because the oath comes with eternal consequences. When we decide to use a sworn oath 
and these necessary conditions are met, that oath will drive the oath taker to the line between heaven and hell, the two sides before them. And their words have eternal consequences for themselves. In his prayer in 1 Kings 8, King Solomon clearly states the active role that the eternal and almighty God takes in the oaths that people on the earth make when they take his name on their lips. God is is right there. Solomon prayed to God, it's 1 Kings 8, verses 31 to 32. I'll I'll read that. It says, "If, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, referring to the temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. See that? How close God is to the words that, that we speak. And when a person subjects his words to the judgment of the holy, eternal, almighty, omniscient, all-knowing creator of heaven and earth, by using his name in an oath, the consequences that person is calling down upon himself for not speaking the truth are, are very weighty. Although persisting in a lie will bring the same consequences to the the sinner, whether one is asked to make an oath or not, that sin of lying is made worse in God's sight if the name of God is dragged into the lie to be blasphemed by a liar. It's in this way that the oath is like God giving one more chance for the, the sinner to come clean. Sort of like our Lord Jesus did when he washed the feet of his disciples and, and, he, and he also warned Judas, God knows there is one of you who will betray me. An oath compels a liar to choose what kind of shame he wants to endure. The temporary shame on earth that a person can repent from or the eternal shame of hell, where there is no longer any time or room for repentance. An oath compels a person to make a decision. Either tell the truth and bear whatever consequences there may be for me in this life, in the promise of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, or ask God, to take the punishment that Christ bore for everyone who repents of their sins and to put that wrath on my own shoulders instead of on Christ's. You see, the oath compels people to choose between rejecting Christ who paid for our sins and remaining in their pride or receiving Christ and rejoicing in his finished work by telling the truth to serve the furtherance of his kingdom. On the other side, for the person who is telling the truth, the oath gives them an opportunity to declare that truth 
in the most authoritative way possible, calling God as a witness, telling the truth with God as a witness is like having God himself declare something as true. That's why in Exodus 22, the truth stated by the oath was simply accepted. It was the word of God, confirmed by God's name. That's why we read in Hebrews 6, verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. And then we see that we can also dishonor God's name by how we respond to someone who makes an oath. A person who refuses to accept an oath as binding. Or a person who continues to suspect a person who is capable of giving an oath, but yet has sworn innocence. That person's actually dishonoring God's name. Dishonoring God's name by their insistence on seeing the consequences that they once believed were, were necessary. Even if they are correct and the oath taker is lying, they are undermining God's wisdom by their impatience. Belittling the righteousness and justice of God who does not fail to punish the unrepentant. To show a lack of faith in God's way of working. So they deprive themselves and others of the comfort that God offers through his name. And when we look at this, we, we long for the, the good news. And, and the good news is that as long as we are alive, we can always repent and find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. If passions drove us to to make an oath to do something that's actually displeasing to God, the Bible tells us that, that such an unlawful oath is not binding. God will forgive us for making that oath. So if you vowed by the moon and the stars to kill that awful man who gave you an embarrassing name or anything like that, you can confess the sin before God. He will forgive you. If you vowed to, to avenge the death of a father a long time ago, it was a sin. You can confess that. The Lord will forgive you. The same is said for oaths of affirmation, those that affirm the truth. If you were like Peter and you got so embarrassed and you got so stuck by everybody asking around and, and you were so afraid and, and, and you, you defended a lie with an oath, thereby rejecting God's grace in Christ, denying the work of Jesus Christ, dishonoring the name of God Most High, you still have time to understand the seriousness of such blasphemy. You still have time to repent, to tell the truth for the sake of your neighbor's well-being, for the sake of the peace of the church, for the sake of your own eternal well-being. It's not worth it to hold on to a lie. It's involved God's name. And that may be the most embarrassing thing you have ever done or had to do. 
Sin does that. When we do sinful things, it it's, fills us with shame. We can hardly look at other people. And we may be petrified of the consequences here on the earth. And that's where the words of our Lord in Matthew 28, 10 verse 28, they urge us, keep that perspective in mind. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He who knows the heart. Persistence in lies and silence is deadly. But even the most vile sinners can be forgiven when we repent from our sins. Stand before the Lord, not in our own name or in our own honor, but in the name of Jesus Christ. And then we see how that oath is such a blessing for society, for the church. It opens the door to restoration of broken relationships. Think of the, the people wondering who stole the animal, what happened to the goods that were being watched over in a passage we read in Exodus 22. Now there was a way for resolution. Now there was a path forward. And brothers and sisters, as we face the devil's attacks on the peace that we ought to have in Christ, and we face these attacks through, through slander and lies like we sang about in Psalm 15, that we pray that God will keep off our lips. We pray that we keep that eternal perspective in our minds all the time, in our thoughts, but also in our words. We pray that the Lord will prevent the need for oaths in our lives because of our honesty and our trustworthiness and our humble service of others. We also pray that when they're needed, the name of God may be used in our oaths for the glory of his name, for the well-being of his church. Amen. We'll now sing together Psalm 141, stanzas 1 and 2. These, these two stanzas kind of bring together what we've seen in the third commandment where we pray that, guard, that the Lord might guard our lips, guard the doorway of my lips so we always think about what we speak, especially how we speak of the name of the Lord. Psalm 141, standing, if you're able to stand, stanzas 1 and 2. <laughs> 